impact or a nonfiction book. I, have you ever heard the definition of a book, particularly in the nonfiction arena, is a condensed person? We all have read books that have been formational, inspirational, educational for us. One of those authors is a guy named Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor. He wrote close to 30 books that's been personally transformational for me of his books. Most famously, he translated uh, the uh, whole Bible, starting with the book of Galatians called The Message, a paraphrased version. He started in the book of Galatians, uh, I think, when he was a pastor on the East Coast. Nav Press published it many years ago. And you may have heard the story uh, of this before. I believe I told it a couple years ago at Deer Run. But he was 85 years old, and he was in the hospital. And he, his family give witness to this, that he was on the hospital bed with his eyes open. And the, the final two words that he spoke before he closed his eyes, fell into a deep sleep, and went into the presence of Jesus, he said, let's go. Let's go. Beautiful story. And I think it actually summarizes what is on God's heart, what's on God's mind, what's on God's vision, uh, a kingdom vision for the world. Since the beginning of, in the beginning of uh, our story in Genesis, God's been saying that. He's been saying, let's go. I want to make all things new. I'm not giving up on any of you. I, I'm redeeming. I am restoring. I am reconciling all things to myself. And this morning, we're continued on this two-part series. Uh, I don't know if uh, you heard last week. It's a little bigger crowd than last week. But we uh, are talking about embracing our sentness. And I want to start the scene here in the Gospel of John. Uh, there's a little image here that uh, I'm kind of a multi-sensory guy. I have to get things in my nostrils to smell and things in my ears to hear and things in my eyes to see when I process and I think. And my wife always gives me a hard time of that, of turn down the music, Joel, turn down the music. Uh, but uh, this artist here gave a scene here of John, a gospel, uh, chapter 20, where we kind of, the foundation of where we are to kind of springboard is uh, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. It's Easter Sunday. We, we've all heard the story. Uh, we've all familiar with these events here in the 20th chapter. And Mary Magdala, Magdala rather, goes to uh, Peter and John. And Peter and John, what do they do? They pull the Usain Bolt and they jolt to the, to, to the tomb. And there's a little detail that I mentioned last week. I don't know if you ever noticed it. I wanted, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask John why he included that in there. But he actually outran Peter, if you remember. He, he beat uh, Peter to the tomb. When they get there... Um, they're, they're astonished and they're confused. Uh, they don't understand what's going on. Uh, the next scene happens where we know that Jesus appears to Mary Magdala. There's a little Rembrandt here, image here, picture uh, that, that, uh, that helps us visualize that, what that was like. Uh, of course, the great beauty here is that Jesus chose to appear to a woman. Uh, the first uh, person to, uh, that Jesus appeared to uh, being Mary, this disciple, uh, this woman who had seven demons and, and followed Jesus. She gave money out of her own uh, bank account to support the ministry of Jesus, we know. And she goes back to the disciples and, and tells them. And, and the disciples are still uh, confused and they still are doubting. And the next scene we see what happens is where we are in John chapter 20. Uh, this image here is from a, a Bengali artist from Bangladesh, a Christian woman living in a predominant Muslim country of Bangladesh, gave us this image. So listen to the word of the Lord here in John chapter 20 by, re, by looking at this image. After this, the seasons of confusion, of doubt, 
perplexity, we see this is what happens in this scene. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, I love how this artist depicts both men and women in this crowd. Mary probably was maybe even there with some of the other women. We don't know who was there uh, exactly. With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you, shalom. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord again. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The next scene that we're not going to talk about is when Thomas was doubting and Jesus appeared to Thomas as well. But this scene here of Jesus appearing, this is not just a history lesson. This is not just talking about the wasness of some event that happened. But there's a bridge here, as John Stott talks about, that there's an isness, there's a hereness, there's a nowness of this event that impacts your life and my life today. And that, event, and that reality is this, that Jesus responds to those disciples, those men and women, I believe, that are in that room. He responds to those disciples the same way he responds to you and I. Because we live lives of confusion, we live lives of fear, we live lives of failure, we live lives of brokenness. But Jesus appears to those disciples, and he does a few things. We talked about it last week. I won't go into detail here today, but he is present with them. Jesus is present with us. Jesus revealed himself. He showed himself to the disciples. He spoke to them, not once but twice, and said, Shalom. And then he said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And this whole idea here, this whole, I think, is, 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 is really bold together. There's a, it's, a, it's not a, 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 an A, B, C, D thing or a one, two, three, four, but I think there's a, a unit here of, of, how, of Jesus responding to us and our fear, doubt, confusion, and failure, being present, revealing himself on a daily basis and sending us to be his church, to be his bride, to be his ambassador, to be his light, to be his salt into a tasteless and dark uh, culture around us. So the title of, of the message here is part two of where we were last week, Embracing Our Sentness, Four Postures to Live By. Uh, or we really could say these are four prayers. You could take these four postures, pray for yourself, pray for your spouse, pray for your kids, pray for your people in your small group, pray for, for people to, to embrace these postures uh, throughout uh, the week. We know that uh, the church is uh, the church when it exists for others. That's what the martyr, German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, that we don't just come here under these walls and say, we don't go to church, we don't build the church, but we are the church. We are the bride of Christ. And we, we move out of this place Monday through Friday into the retirement homes we live in, to the neighborhoods we live in, to the schools we go to, uh, to the uh, planes we get on and maybe go travel and do things, I don't know. But, but we are the church wherever we go. Uh, you know, you, you're kind of working on a message and you get emails and Again, to these ideas of different people who've kind of helped shape, uh, or who write authors. One of those guys I like to uh, read a lot is a guy named Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic Franciscan out of New Mexico. And he, 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 wrote, he, he sent an email that he sends every day, and I get them. And just the other day, I want, you, I want to read this to you because I think it illustrates this so beautifully. Listen to this. Think of the many, many stories of God choosing people. There are Moses and Miriam, Abraham, Sarah, Deborah, David, Jeremiah, and Esther. There is Israel itself. Much later, there's Peter, Paul, and most especially Mary. God is always choosing concrete people. And I would just put a little parenthesis here. God is choosing you. God is choosing me. He has uh, predestined and chosen you uh, since the beginning of time. And I believe that. So first impressions aside, going back to Royal's quote, God is not primarily choosing them for a role or task. 
although it might appear that way. God is really choosing them to be and to, and to image God to this world. God needs images. God needs people to be willing instruments. It's essential, though, for God's instruments to know that they are not alone, that they are not just doing their own thing, but rather are doing God's thing. When God chooses someone in the Bible, the standard opening line is, do not be afraid. In Genesis 15:1, we see that for the first time, and we've seen it here in John 20 and all throughout the scripture. And the final line usually includes the promise, I will be with you, is in Exodus 3:12. Being chosen doesn't mean that God likes one over another or finds some better than others. Almost always, in fact, those chosen are quite flawed or at least ordinary people. It is clear that their power is not their own. As Paul will put it, quote, if anyone wants to boast, they can only boast about the Lord. I don't know what you think about when you think about being sent, but you, sometimes our mind goes to we think of others who are sent. We think of a missionary. We think of a Martin Luther King, a Mother Teresa. We think of, uh, you know, if you've been around the church for a while, and when I was in college, I read a lot of those guys like William Carey and Adonai Judson and Hudson Taylor, those great missionary uh, movements, uh, you know, back in uh, s- several hundred years ago. Um, the thing I want to say about that is this, is that, that being sent is just continuing on with Richard War. he says here, is that being, being the sent people of God is, is more than just what we do, but it's who we are. We are human beings before we're human doings. And so there's always this vertical connectedness of transformation always connected to the horizontal outreach of the compassion of, the, of our missional outreach or whatever we do. Uh, there's so many ways to say that. I, I think Paul sums it up. This is really kind of a, a scriptural truth. In Ephesians 2, Paul says we're saved, what, by grace through faith? And then he says that we are what? We are God's workmanship. Do you remember that text? And, and that word there is poema, which we get our word poetry. So we are God's poetry. When we read poetry, it bounces, it jumps off the page, it leaps, it catches our attention, it awakens us, right? And so each of you are poetry to the world. So the greatest work that God does is being the sent people of God is what God does in us, is what, how God transforms us, is it changes us and, and from our fears and our doubts and our confusion to be who he wants us to be. And, of course, he, he ends that text in Ephesians 2. He says, we are God's workmanship, what? created in Christ to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Yes, there are good works, but the greatest, more important, the works that we do individually, even as a church, is what God does in us and transforms us. Uh, this became evident. I want to tell you a story I told you last, uh, maybe a couple years ago. I don't know if we, uh, uh, but many years ago, I did year, a lot of ministry in the nation of India uh, in college. <clears throat> and uh, could you give me a glass of water? Got something here lodged. So, um, so, long story short, is uh, 1992. I was uh, after my sophomore year in college with a group of students in Calcutta, India, and one of these transformational moments of in, in experiences, we said, "Hey, I think Mother Teresa lives in Calcutta, doesn't she?" And like, "Oh, yeah, I think she does." You know, college kids don't know exactly what's going on, and so we went. We knocked on the door of Mother Teresa. A sister charity opened the door and said, we, you know, here we are, 19-year-old kids, and said, hey, we'd like to see Mother Teresa. And we thought the door would be slammed in our face, but they said, okay, come on in. And so we went up some stairs, and a few minutes later, uh, she came out, and she was just this little, you know, she's like five, she was five, five, and she just came running out. Hello, what brings you to India? I'm so glad you came. Let me give you my business card. And, and she was all fired up, and, and actually I have her business card framed where she signed it and it has a prayer on it. It says the fruit of silence is, uh, you know, fruit of prayer is silence, fruit of silence is service, fruit of service is love. 
the fruit of love is peace or something like that. And, uh, and so it was a one of several occasions where uh, on, through the years I got to go back and, and sit down with her. Thank you so much. Um, and so on one occasion, I got to sit down with her and ask her what prayer means. I said, what is prayer? And I never forget her answer. She said, prayer enlarges the heart until it's capable of containing the gift of God himself. And then I remember she was actually in a wheelchair. It was six months before she died, around the year 97, I think, because I remember it was six months from the death of Princess Diana. And I, and I, and I never forget, I was in Africa when she died and really grieved, but that, remembering this ex experience, because she was in a wheelchair, she wasn't that spunky woman that I met in 92, so four or five years later, and she got my hand, and she got my fingers, and she said, this is how we teach our sisters to pray. She said, we do, do we do this? With one hand, we say, I can, I will, by God's grace, I will be holy. The vertical, the transformational. And then with the other fingers, we say this, you did it to me. Taking the words from Matthew 25, where Jesus says, you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And we, we, we basically teach our sisters that they put their hands together and they pray. So this, again, this, this sitness is the posture of both transformational inwardly as well as, as what we do outward. So last week we looked at two postures. Last week we looked at, as we embrace this sitness, we are sent with God's power to be fully present. Uh, we looked at, we are sent with compassion for all people. Remember being present, we, we, we have a hard time being present in a culture that's polarized, that's cynical, that's skeptical, and our reaction is either one or two ways. We, we, we turn inward or we pull away. So we need God's power. We need that dunamis power, that iskawas power we talked about in Ephesians 1.18, for God to do in us that limitless supply of God's power uh, to be present, to show biblical hospitality, uh, to love those who maybe are hard to love with, to forgive those who are hard to forgive, to be present. And we talked about compassion, those five stages of compassion from the story of Jesus healing the leper. Today we're going to look at uh, three, two more postures, and they are we are sent with honesty about our own powerlessness. As we embrace our sentness as God's people, this is the third posture uh, that we're going to talk about. Uh, we are sent with honesty about our own powerlessness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12.9 is the text for this, because if anyone who... Uh, we can learn from, of course, is Paul in his great ways that he was sent. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about that. We know the stories of all through Acts of his missionary journeys and his uh, ways that he was used by God. Second uh, Corinthians 12:9 is a text that we're familiar with. The thing that you must realize and remember as you read this familiar text that many of you, when he talks about the thorn in his flesh, we don't know what this thorn was. Uh, some say maybe it was his eyesight, maybe it was pride, maybe it was lust, maybe it was addiction, maybe it was. Uh, you know, some sort of obsessive disorder. Who knows what this, this thorn was? And he asked the Lord to take it away, and, he, and the Lord, you know, didn't. But he wrote this uh, text to the church in Corinth uh, over two decades, two, two decades past his Damascus Road conversion. So he's not a new believer. And he's on his third missionary journey. So he's already had some, you know, experience under his belt. He's, he's had some successes. He's had some failures. He's seen some fruit of churches planted. And yet, it's kind of like older in his life, he talks about what he's boasting about. What he is trying to be honest about is this weakness, this thorn. He said to me, referring to Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, and hardship, and persecution, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is so countercultural to our culture, to our society. When our culture says, you know, strength is great, uh, you know, the, 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 much, the money in your bank account that takes your status in our society, there's something so contrary to a, to a kingdom value of powerlessness. So, so much historically, the church has been seduced by the wrong kind of power. Have we not? We see this in the disciples of Jesus. Remember when the disciples were walking around, James and John, and they were saying, hey, who can have the corner office when you come back with your, you know, might and, you know, overthrow the Romans? Uh, who can drive the Bentley, right? Who can, who can uh, have the, C, the great CDs and stocks? You know, who, who, who is it that, that, that can, can have that, that, that power? Uh, we see that in, when, the, when Jesus was arrested and Peter got out the sword, but Jesus said, put it away. I, I kind of see there's three or four ways that the church has been seduced by power. Uh, through the centuries, this is going back through the times of Jesus. If you look through the history of Christian, uh, the Christian church, the history of Christian mission, uh, per- particularly for us in the West, we are seduced by Wall Street. We are, su- we are seduced by the, 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 the dollar, aren't we? Are we not? The idea is that if we have uh, the, 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 the money, the resource, then we will be able to, to accomplish, uh, uh, we will have the power to accomplish what we need to accomplish. Uh, perhaps other times that we are uh, seduced is, wa- is by Washington, for instance, or who is in office. We are seduced by political power to accomplish the means of God's kingdom. But we almost must always recognize that Jesus uh, came with a, a towel, did he not, to wash the feet of those around him. He came to serve. He came to humble himself. And so we as the church must take the same posture. It takes uh, a lot of courage to be vulnerable, does it not? Think about this in the context of your marriage. Think about this in the context of parenting, of, 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 of workers you maybe work with. And I think if the church is to be the church, and we are sent with honesty about our own powerlessness, that we must have the courage to be vulnerable. Uh, Brene Brown says this, the vulnerability is, is three things. She's a PhD teacher, professor down in the uh, University of Houston. I think she has the second most high viewed TED talk. I encourage you to listen to her. She's a believer. She's a follower of Jesus. Uh, as a friend of mine, a pastor in Houston, knows her real well. And um, she says vulnerability is uncertainty, it's risk, and it's emotional exposure. She says this, we can measure how brave one is by how vulnerable you're willing to be. Because she says that vulnerability is the birthplace of transformation, of love, and joy. We have to move into Places of vulnerability. Just in the, like I said, in the context of relationships, when we do that in the context of marriage, you do that in the context of family, of, of work relationships or whatever, you see change, you see transformation, you see honesty. You know, all throughout this city every day, all throughout this country every day, all throughout the globe every day, there's groups that meet in basements, a lot of them in churches, but sometimes in uh, hospitals, sometimes in buildings that are some, some neutral location, and they walk through what's called the 12 steps. They walk through uh, the 12 steps program that was created by a, a follower of Jesus, a guy named Bill Wilson in the 1920s who was trying to get sober. And, and he had a friend, and actually it started over in Ohio, which we now know as Alcohol Anonymous, AA. And now there's NA, and there's CA, and there's uh, people with sexual addictions, there's people with eating disorders, and people with gambling addictions that walk through this program called 12 Steps. One of the things that the recovery community teaches is this, is how do you change? 
how do we become transformed? And they talk about the how being an acronym that says, first, you have to be honest, H. O is you have to be open-minded, open-minded that you need uh, power outside of yourself, which is God himself, and a willingness to submit to that process. There's a lot more to be said there, but I think that's a beautiful reminder as followers of Jesus that we say, well, I, I may not be in that context of an addiction or a struggle or a problem, but we can be all moved to honesty to, uh, of how we need things changed and how we need Christ to come into our life to change those areas of our life that we struggle with. There's two metaphors here I want to share real briefly about this, and the first is uh, what uh, is called a kintsugi bowl. It's a Japanese art form that you see. You've heard this before. I think I've shared this before. Um, but it's a, it's, a art, it's a Japanese art bowl that's sold in Japan and all around the world. And it's a broken piece of pottery. And if you, and, and, but the Japanese, what they do is they glue that together with gold uh, resin that's, that's around the bowl. And the value of it is so much more higher than the, the original pottery uh, it usually is. And I think this is a great image uh, of a metaphor of, of embracing our flaws, embracing our brokenness, uh, and, and embracing the imperfections that we all have in the human experience. Because when Christ uh, and, and, and community and wise counsel are a part of our life, we see our lives put back together. The second other image here, I meant to put a picture, but I didn't, but I think you can follow it, is the image of a railroad track. You see, the tension is this in, li in living with that struggles that we have. And the tensions are this. Think of a railroad track of one. A uh, railroad track has two pieces of steel on either side with wood beams in between. And I think a lot of times that's the times of the tension of life. On one side of life, there is the hope of resurrection. There's a hope of Jesus who's raised from the dead. His power lives in us and he transforms us. But at the same time, there's violence and there's, uh, there is uh, injustice. Uh, there is... Uh, hardship and there is hatred and there is lust and there is all the things that happen of, of evil that within us and within around us. And I think as we move through life, we understand that that is a constant tension. It's not maybe the metaphor of valleys or, or mountains as we maybe think about, but it's this constant tension of a, of a simultaneous hope. The, the greatest witness the world needs and the greatest witness that Indianapolis needs, the greatest witness that Pike Township needs is us as Christ followers, as Common Ground West, being honest and real about our own struggle and how Christ, community, and the counsel of others put us back together, flourish us, and make us whole. We can't do it alone. You remember, uh, if you remember, G Jesus wrote Lazarus from the dead. He was wrapped, was he not? But it took other people to unwrap him of all what he was wrapped with. I think that's a great image when we know Christ comes into our life we need the help of others to unwrap us. So the, the beauty is this, the encouragement to you is this, is to share your story of, of, of brokenness. Share your story of powerlessness. And I don't know what that is for you, but be, be honest with that. Because your story of how Christ has entered that story, how community has entered that story, how council has entered that story, is never at the mercy of an argument. Secondly, I want to say this, lastly actually, is we are sent with humility to all places and people groups. We are sent to all peoples and all places. Um, years ago, I was in, the, in Africa, and uh, I think it was at that same time when Mother Teresa died, maybe a few years later, but I was in a refugee camp, and long story short is that the, uh, 
I went to this church and went to this worship service, and some of you have been to Africa, you know how amazing it is and beautiful it is. And it was in refugees, people who had fled Sudan into Uganda, had not, had basically had not, uh, would not travel beyond a few mile radius of where they lived in this, in this refugee camp. Uh, no disposable income. In fact, their offerings that day, they would come and they'd bring a dead chicken and put it on the table. They'd bring a bag of corn, put it on the table. And a lot, a lot of uh, uh, disposable income in their context. Well, the next day that church had burned down and we had been back, we didn't know exactly what happened. Someone was angry with them, and we went and we saw a, a, a tree. I saw a tree that was right next to that church. And the, on the sign of that tree was a sign that said, Ajumini Church, the Center for World Evangelization and Global Impact. In the heart of this little refugee camp, I believe, was a band of, of Jesus followers who were embracing a, a, a kingdom vision. Of, of God's reign and his rule for all the world. And, and I believe God looked upon those little, uh, that little place and that forgotten place, that remote place, and, and was smiling from ear to ear. We need to hear the stories of that as we as a local church and the church in this country, that we are a church that exists uh, for the nations to the ends of the earth. There's so much to be said about this, and I've maybe told the story I want to tell real quick that uh, I was on a train in India uh, years ago, and this man, uh, was. we were singing, and there was this long train ride, and I had a guitar out, and it was singing, and it was singing uh, uh, Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama, followed by Graham Kendrick's Shine, Jesus, Shine. And uh, so this one man said, "Who? what is Alabama? Who is Alabama? You know, so I said, well, it's a part of America, it's, you know. And then, and then following afterwards, he, he said this. He said, well, who, who is Jesus you're singing about? Is he a singer from America? <laughs> we are sent to all peoples who deserve to know the love of God, to deserve a relationship with God. So this morning, pray for God's power to be present. We pray to grow in compassion we pray to embrace our powerlessness as a means of connection, and we are sent to all peoples. Would you pray with me? I want to read to you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Jesus' words here in Matthew that I quoted earlier. Listen to his version of this reminder. Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I've commanded you. I'll be with you as you do this. Day after day after day after day, right up to the end of the age. Amen.